Let's bow our heads as we stand. Lord God, use your word, we pray, to build us up so that we and all your people may be like that comet blazing across the world in the love of Christ. Amen. Please do sit. (coughs) And please find Galatians chapter 5. It's page 1171. Freedom. Freedom is a stylish and sophisticated bar located in the heart of London's Soho. I know because the internet told me. And it's very free, too. You can go to Kinky Cabaret on Monday or to Drag Night on Thursday. Freedom means different things to different people. So many people live life under so many constraints that when the lid comes off, there's this explosion of self-indulgence. That is not what Paul means. We're back in Galatians, now in chapter 5. And to summarize what we've already heard in Galatians, the Galatians have heard a while back now from Paul a message of the grace of God in Jesus. God's mercy and kindness towards us who only deserved punishment. But now, they are coming under a new influence. The influence of those who are offering Jesus plus. Jesus plus the Jewish law. Yes, they say, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's the Messiah of the Jews. So to get the benefits of God's grace, you'd better become Jews first. For men, that meant the knife. And Paul sets out to explain in new ways in this chapter why that's nonsense and dangerous nonsense to boot. Paul's aim is to uphold freedom and to denounce any kind of slavery to the law of Israel. In verses 2 to 6, he defines what the problem is. And first, he begins by giving three comments on what is wrong with circumcision. First, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 2. First, Christ is useless. You will have made a decision for the law. Now, elsewhere, he's argued that Christ's obedience... Um, As it were, the law is like a a vessel, a jug, uh, with demands. And Christ's obedience fills up to the brim of that jug the demands of the law, so that the law has most literally been filled, fulfilled. There are no longer any, there's no space for the law to make any demands on us. What happened on the cross is a total obedience by Jesus, which fills up the law, and takes away its penalty for our sins. So to go back to the law makes Christ's work useless. Secondly, you're going to have to go all the way. The law was never a matter of picking and choosing. It's all or nothing. Opt for circumcision, the great marker of being included in the law. You can't just have circumcision. You've got to start thinking who's going to turn the lights on and off for you on a Saturday. Because you can't do it anymore. 
because you're supposed to keep the law. Thirdly, you will be alienated from God Christ and fallen from grace. Verse 4 now. If you throw your lot in with the law, that means in itself that you are rejecting God's free offer of grace. Christ plus always ends up meaning Christ minus. To add to Jesus and his work is to deny him and his work. If you look at how he starts in verse 2, Paul is very solemn here. Mark my words. I, Paul, oomph of apostolic authority, I tell you, if you do what the incomers are saying, then Christ is useless, the law has got to become everything for you, and grace has fallen away from you. But we, verse 5, but we are defined by faith, not by the law, and in two ways. First, by faith, we wait for God to reveal by his Spirit the firm and certain hope of our public proclamation as being righteous, being right with him. We don't see it now, although by faith we believe it and we act on it. Secondly, coming to the end of verse 6, in the here and now we get on with that life of faith, which looks like love. Don't go hunting circumcision, it doesn't matter. Equally, though, if you are circumcised, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. What matters is living by faith. And if you're living by faith in what Jesus has done, it'll show itself in how we love others. That's the what, verses 2 to 6, of all that's going on. The demand for circumcision and Paul's alternative by faith. <coughs> um, it's one of those rare times where I could appreciate a glass of water. Thank you. Normally I live in fear of knocking them over, so I don't have one, but I would be grateful. Thank you. But now a little on the who of what's going on. The bad guys, if you will. These men who want to cut the flesh. Who were they who cut in on you? That's what he says in verse 7. See what he does there? He makes a pun. Well, hold your sides. Um, uh, What can we say about them? Well, one, they don't obey the truth. Verse 7. Note that. Truth isn't a head knowledge. If you go out into the world around you and talk about truth, people assume it's something just just in your head. No, truth is something to obey. It's personal in Scripture. Secondly, verse 8, they're not from God, but they're evil. Uh, Paul quotes the the saying that Jesus had talked uh, about. It was a kind of proverb in their times. A little yeast works through the whole dough. We have an exactly um, the same proverb that a bad apple spoils the whole barrel. What starts off rotten, because that's how they looked at yeast, that it was kind of going off, and even though, thank you very much, Carol, even though they could uh, take advantage of it in making bread, they used it as a proverb for what goes off and then takes everything else with it. They're not from God, they're evil, and they will carry on and make everyone else around them evil. They don't obey the truth, they're not from God. Nice work, Andrew. Turn, turn the sound down, just to avoid me, you hearing me going... Yeah. Um, three, they will face a penalty. Verse 10. 
the one throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever may, he may be. Four, they're wildly wrong if they think I'm preaching circumcision. What was happening, probably, is that they were accusing Paul of being inconsistent. When you're with us, you preach against circumcision, but then you go over to some bunch of Jewish people and you never say anything to them. You say they're okay because they're circumcised. You don't tell them to renounce their circumcision. So you're, you're kind of inconsistent. Uh, when you're with them, you're preaching circumcision anyway. And Paul says, no, I'm not. All I'm saying is that circumcision doesn't matter. At least it doesn't matter until you rely on it upon Jewishness, to get you into a right standing with God. And at the moment you rely on it, then it matters. Fifth. In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. And I'm going to pause here for a moment or two. It's perhaps worth registering again part of what the cross of Jesus means. And why persecution, as Paul says about himself in verse 11, is an understandable response. The fundamental root of all persecution is resistance to the gospel, the good news. The world, insofar as it is the world, has to despise those who uh, follow the cross and its message. Because the cross pronounces a great thundering no to all human schemes for goodness. The cross reminds us that the only solution to the human heart is death and then resurrection. But humanity will always think that the answer is education, knowing more. When the message of the cross enters our ears, then we're only going to go one of two ways. We're either going to go to repentance or to rage. Because it's the kind of rage that is an affront to our ego. There are all kinds of ways in which it shows itself, but just because Ian's quoted it, let's, let's use that one. I would be a Christian, only it's not cool. Well, surely the definition of cool is to be that person, like the kind of um, like the, the lone ranger, who is just their own little island, untouched, cool towards anything else, picking and choosing what they want to do, and uh, followable, worth following, because they're untouched, which is a bizarre definition. And when we go into the world and pronounce a message that is magnificently uncool, because actually we say we're not alone. Togetherness with others is at the heart of it, with all the mess and the disagreement that that brings. It's desperately uncool. Great. We wouldn't mind a message that commends us or makes us feel good, but the cross tells us that we completely lack real goodness. For that, we need to die and to be raised to a new life. And so I urge you, if you've never worked through what the cross means, then do so today. Take it to our prayers after the service. It's not surprising, then, that Paul himself is enraged 
when there are those around who say that Jesus helps, but what really matters is keeping the law. Oh, I wish they'd go the whole way and hope the knife would slip while they're at it, he says. Verse 12. It's a rough translation. Uh, That's the what and the who of all that's going on. Paul insists that we are not to keep the law. But if that's what freedom is, then so far this could let in kinky cabaret on Monday and drag night on Thursday. We're free from the law, woohoo, let's party. No, verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. And that is an astonishing line. (coughs) He's addressed them as brothers, yet again he tells them again, the fundamental relationship is kinship. As brothers and sisters in Christ, it's what we are. But there's no easy way in English to convey the kind of gobsmacking, open-mouthed stunner of what he says. The whole argument since chapter 5 opened, remember, has been this. Stand firm in freedom and don't be yoked again by a burden of slavery. The word for slavery at the beginning of chapter 5 is dulea. The word for serve one another in verse 13 is duluo. It's the same root. In verse 12, Paul is calling us again to slavery. To a service of one another that runs so deep that he uses the same word as they used for slave. Now, we've got to be careful. They only had one word for slave and servant of this kind. There'd be lots of unhelpful pictures of slavery that we could import into verse 13. But whatever else we say, we can say this. Whatever he meant by slavery as submission to the law, he means here by, by take away the law in order to, be, to submit to one another. And so, uh, verse 13 or 14, love your neighbor as yourself. We are freed from the law, but we are freed for love. Now, of course, if we turn from the scene in this letter and we turn the spotlight on ourselves, the problem that many of us are going to face is we've heard all this before. Again, Ian touched on it in his prayers, that sense of ho-hum. We've lived a while as a Christian and it's, we know the message. We've had the chance to develop subtle and sophisticated ways in which we can think ourselves free while actually still following some kind of law. I don't suppose anyone here believes in a strict way that Jesus is all right as far as he goes, but what really matters is following the same code of behaviors I follow. But it lurks. We say by faith, and we mean by faith. The problem is that law lurks. For instance, I I can't remember any time when I could have thought of this congregation and thought they mustn't keep on biting and devouring each other, verse 15. Oh no, another week of biting and devouring each other. Never thought that. We're far too well-mannered to do that. But we might well have such different opinions about things that don't finally matter. Perhaps we might gossip about others. 
Those who like music one way, those who like music another. I've known people try us out who then complained to me that the people of this congregation don't dress properly for church. We can complain about one another in ways that make it clear that we still cling to a little bit of Christ plus. Christ, yes, great. Plus doing things my way. All while being perfectly clear in our minds that we are walking by faith and certainly not by the law. I remember, uh, just to tell a story against myself, I remember the time I was totally shocked. One time when a couple left a course we were running on Christian basics, they left after about 45 minutes because they needed a cigarette break. It just wasn't my world. So we did what we could. We changed the way we ran the course to allow for lots of breaks. The truth is that we come by grace. But law lurks and we make judgments about others. And law, when it lurks, will grow again unless we cut it off constantly. I want to finish by considering again this business of freedom for love. I'm sure if someone wanted to, they could make it into a caricature. Oh, yeah, these Christians. They want you to be free from one law, but only in order to bind you into another one a drudgery of being a doormat for everyone who wants a bit of your life, they'll call it love. Huh. Why don't you just come down to the pub with us, to the bar in Soho? And that, I suspect, is exactly the reaction I would get if I tried to take Paul's message of freedom to some of those who hang out in Wardour Street, that Christian freedom is a contradiction in terms. Paul agrees. He couldn't write verse uh, 13, serve one another in love, unless he was acutely aware of the fact that Christian freedom is a willing slavery, only it's of a very different kind. There was a song in the 1970s that captured it. Uh, Some of you, uh, some of us, will remember it, unfortunately. Uh, Pierce my ear. Um, It was quite a novel idea in the 1970s when not many people had pierced ears. Probably wouldn't work quite so much now, but it's not a song for tattoo artists, but it derives from a provision in the Old Testament law. If a slave was freed but wanted to continue in service to their previous master because that master had been kind and generous, then the law provided for the former slave to have his ear pierced as a sign that he was now a willing servant and no longer a slave. It's a picture of what Paul is saying here. It isn't that freedom is basic and Christians go and spoil it by adding loving service to it. Any more than God in his divine freedom said to himself, Oh, all right, I'd better go and sort it out for them, Gabriel. Loving service is who God is. Loving service is what he created us for. Loving service is what we're made for and therefore what we are freed for. Next, that that brings conflicts and next week we'll look at those. But it remains the truth. We are most ourselves when we are for others. Just as God is most himself when he is for others 
well, not as though he could ever be anything other than that. Last week, I spoke about the ways that equality can trump all the arguments that there are about the place of homosexual affection in our world. It's a hot topic. It means we have to move in careful boundaries, saying yes to this, no to that. But hot topics have a way of constraining us. And we mustn't let the church's hot topics leave us narrow or mean in spirit. Every collapse in the world around us is a sorrow. But it's also an opportunity. When sexual habits are indulgent, when financial markets collapse, there's pain. But there's also an opportunity. It's all an opportunity to proclaim the cross and say, look at it. Worldly ways of going about things just don't work, finally. It was illustrated to me when someone said to me after last week that they'd tried gay love, but it just didn't satisfy. And I wonder whether since, what, 60 years, since the establishing of the welfare state, I wonder whether we've ever had an opportunity like the one we've got at the moment. Listen to all the rage that there is out there, that with all our education and all our resourcing and all our cleverness, our resources are running out. And then look at the orange bags that get left here on a table on the last Sunday of every month for the food bank. Faith expressing itself through love, serving one another in love. Behind those orange bags, don't know why they're orange, don't know why it's the Sainsbury's is favoured for the food bank, but there we go. Behind it all lies the cross of Jesus. First come to terms with it, perhaps for the first time. Perhaps all over again. Renounce, give up. Set yourself at peace from the sheer hassle and drain of keeping up standards that Jesus couldn't care less about. And then proclaim that cross and practice it. The world may repent or be enraged, but the world does not now stand in need of more laws. It needs the cross of Jesus, the Christ of God. Let's pray. There may be things that you personally need to come to terms with, with God, but right now let's uh, do so as a congregation. Lord, we come before you and we repent of all those things that we have added to the cross of Jesus. To the standards that we think we follow and we want to expect of others. to the ways of doing things that seem so native to us that it wouldn't occur to us anyone could do it any other way. And perhaps even to all the good things that we know you approve of that we do and we don't see everybody doing, so you must like us more. Lord, have mercy upon us, upon our wretched and endless quest to mark ourselves out as different, better, than those others you've called us to be our brothers and sisters. We repent of it, and we ask that you would set us free to serve one another in love, to find new, 
paths of love, in the endless landscape of love that you open before us, with all its opportunities, whether they're like uh, Ian's down the pub with his friend, or whether they're in our workplace or school or wherever it may be. Set us free all over again, we pray. Amen.